0: Um, It it happens to be 50 years ago to the month since I arrived at Exeter College uh, to read PPE. And my tutor was Norman Hunt, who later became Lord Crowther Hunt, and who was a close confidant of Harold Wilson, uh, then leader of the opposition, and shortly afterwards Labour Prime Minister. And it was the tutorials in his uh, romantically untidy study at the top of the spiral staircase of Exeter College Tower, littered with piles of books and reports on every aspect of British government, and uh, frequently interrupted by his phone conversations with Harold Wilson that made me want to become an academic and to study politics. Well, one of the core PPE papers then was called Political Institutions, and the books on the reading list, many of them written by uh, Americans, tended to the view that the British system of government was close to perfect and certainly far superior to others. It was simple and easily understood as the world's constitutions go. It was strong, decisive and accountable, and it was stable. The government, always of one party, governed for four or five years, but then the public had their say, which the electoral system ensured was a decisive say. The civil service was a Rolls-Royce machine of disinterested and high-minded public servants that purred in support of experienced and respected ministers. And not least, the system was effective. It worked. It delivered the goods. There were occasional cock-ups. Suez, 1956, for example. But when that happened, the electorate could always throw the raspers out. They might complain about the government's objectives. They rarely complained about the state's competence. Well, fast forward 50 years to today. UK government, and I don't just mean the current coalition government, and the political class that run it have never been held in such poor regard. Turnout in elections, membership for political parties, the readership and audience for the political news are all at historic lows. Surveys place MPs alongside estate agents and tabloid journalists as the least trusted occupational groups in Britain. And nowadays, government is increasingly seen as part of the problem, not the solution, and the political process is regarded as a petty distraction rather than as a means of addressing the critical problems uh, that are faced by individuals or society at large. Some of the present day causes for the popular dissatisfaction with UK government and its politicians and senior officials are fairly obvious. The global financial crisis has made almost all elected governments that it caught unawares very unpopular. Uh, In this country, the parliamentary expenses scandal, I think, has left a scar, and there have been deeper longer-term factors, in particular the decline of the power of the sovereign nation-state in an era of globalisation. Governing well is always difficult, far more so than commentators and citizens imagine, but in an age of globalisation I think it's probably even more difficult. But in Britain, government is, is disrespected for the simple reason that British governments frequently get things wrong, sometimes very badly wrong. They cock things up. Probably increasingly, probably on a greater scale than at least some comparable countries, and certainly unnecessarily and too often. And this is the genesis of the book that uh, I have recently written with Anthony King. The title is taken from James Madison in Federalist Number 62 who lamented the blunders of our governments, and he meant the 13 state governments in America, and who went on to ask, what indeed are all the repealing, explaining and amending laws which fill and disgrace our voluminous codes, but so many monuments of deficient wisdom? Well, we set about studying monuments of deficient wisdom in the UK over the past 30 years or so, up to 2010, to see if there are patterns that explain them. Let me make it clear from the outset that we've not embarked on a neo-conservative treatise against the role of government. We devote a whole chapter, in fact, to government successes. And we're well aware of the major cock-ups at public expense perpetrated in the private sector. I simply mentioned the Royal Bank of Scotland, Northern Rock, the BP Gulf of Mexico, spill, and Jaguar Land Rover bailout to make the point. But our book is about government blunders and I should say it's confined to Domestic policy. By a blunder, we mean a case of a government initiative to achieve one or more stated objectives, which not only failed totally to achieve those objectives, but in addition, wastes very large amounts of public money and or causes widespread human distress and was eventually abandoned or reversed and was foreseeable. And I shall shortly give examples of some horror stories, but before doing so, let me say what we excluded. Blunders are only one, although an important form, of government failure or policy error. First of all, we didn't count mere policy disappointments. A great deal of government action produces outcomes that are smaller, slower, weaker, more expensive and less clear-cut than envisaged or hoped for. For example, much of New Labour's attempts to reduce social exclusion, improve public services and raise educational and health standards fall into this category. The programmes were trumpeted very loud, the initial claims proved too optimistic, there was lots of spinning, the outcome turned out to be modest. But they didn't achieve the opposite of what was intended. They didn't waste colossal amounts of money or result in collateral damage. They were disappointments. Perhaps not worth undertaking in the first place, but not blunders. We distinguish blunders, secondly, from what Americans call wrong judgment calls, including controversial ones, which proved mistaken in hindsight, but were justifiable in the light of knowledge at the time. The real world of government is often intractable and ultimately unknowable. People in government, as in all walks of life, Know only what they know, find out only what they can find out, and in circumstances of extreme uncertainty and limited empirical evidence, decide what on balance it makes sense for them to do. They will sometimes be right, sometimes be wrong, but the fact that they turn out to have been wrong does not mean that they have blundered, that they have made mistakes that uh, are careless. Or stupid. For example, the Treasury's sale of half the UK gold reserves from 1999 to 2002 at the bottom of the market is easy to fault in hindsight, uh, but uh, it was a wrong judgment call rather than a blunder. And I would also argue that, for example, the uh, uh, the government's um, uh, the, the, the government's um, Uh, Response to uh, the BSE outbreak and to foot and mouth disease uh, uh, in in, uh, uh, 2001 comes into the same category. So although all blunders are mistakes, not all mistakes are blunders. Our blunders are sins of commission and we distinguish them from sins of omission. One could write a very compelling history of post-war UK governments in terms of their failure to address in good order and in good time critical problems confronting the country. One thinks, for example, of successive government's failure to deal effectively with the challenge of social care for an increasingly ageing population, of its tardiness in devising a national strategy for sustainable energy and for food sufficiency, and its inability to decide on the location for, let alone provide, increased air capacity, airport capacity in London. This form of governmental failure has massive public consequences and deserves attention and explanation, but our focus is on specific, identifiable instances of deliberate policy decisions that have gone spectacularly wrong. So perhaps sins of omission should be called meta-blunders. And finally, we don't mean policies that are merely controversial or unpopular or contested between the parties. What counts is not the objective of a policy, but whether or not it has been achieved and at one cost. And it turns out that most of the big blunders we studied were matters on which parties were agreed, at least uh, in principle. We studied 12 blunders from 1980 to 2010, taken from a very much longer list compiled from the suggestions that gushed forth from a large number of former ministers, senior officials and political commentators. And here are the Dirty Dozen in chronological order. The widespread mis-selling of private pensions in the late 1980s. The poll tax, of course, the classic policy blunder. Um, The Child Support Agency, established in 1993, still in desperate difficulties under another name after nearly 20 years. Britain's entry into the exchange rate mechanism in 1990 at the wrong level, and its humiliating exit in 1992. The Millennium Dome in the year 2000, not desperately important in the scale of things, but it did lose £800 million pounds and was an entertaining mishap. Uh, the fiasco of individual learning accounts in 2001, which turned out to be a charter for embezzlers and shysters, there are still uh, trials of the fraudsters whom the government paid for the non-existing training of non-existing students. The whole business of the administration of tax credits, introduced in 2003, including demands for large reimbursements from recipients long after the event. The Assets Recovery Agency, also established in 2003, which was charged with recovering the ill gotten gains of criminal activities, but cost far more to run than it ever obtained, and was closed down after five years. The failure, year after year, from 2005 to 2009, to pay British farmers monies due to them from the EU, resulting in bankruptcies and suicides. The endless problems with ill-conceived and over-ambitious government IT projects, most notably but by no means limited to the abandonment of the NHS patient record system before it ever came into operation the collapse of Metronet, which was the public-private partnership for the modernisation of the London Underground, at a cost of the, the very minimum of £2 billion to the taxpayer. And then finally, the on again, off again, on again, and now apparently off again, introduction of ID cards, which has consumed a great deal of time and a considerable amount of public money. There were other strong candidates that just failed to make the list. For example, the GP contract settlement of 2004, which in the words of the British Medical Association left them stunned. It left them stunned because they didn't think it was possible to get such a good deal out of the government. It gave GPs six-figure salaries and permitted uh, them no longer to work at uh, weekends, uh, but we didn't put it, we didn't include it as a blunder because it did actually achieve the government's objective, which was to increase recruitment of GPs, which wasn't really surprising given 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 given, given, the, given, given uh, what a great deal it was. Well, let me now give you more of a flavour. Of these blunders by describing just three of them in a little bit more detail, and I'll then later refer to them when I discuss the causes of blunders. So, first of all, the poll tax. Well, this was introduced in 1990 to replace property based local taxes by a flat rate community charge on all local adult residents. The Conservative Party, especially its local activists, vocal at annual conferences, had long regarded the rates as unfair. Two figures, deeply embedded in conservative iconography, were always contrasted to the elderly widow, living alone in her family house, paying the same rates as the family next door, consisting of mum, dad and three strapping young men, and they were invariably strapping, all bringing income into the household. The rates, moreover, weren't paid by council house tenants, and therefore funded the profligacy, as it was seen, of labour councils to fleece homeowners. The community charge would be fairer, would make local authorities accountable to the local electorate, and financially more prudent. That was the belief. Well, it was, as is well known, a colossal blunder, the mother of all blunders, perhaps. Uh, It was uncollectible in some communities, especially the big cities. It cost 2.5 billion in uncollected taxes. It led to the collapse of the finances of some local authorities. It caused widespread human misery, especially among low-income owner-occupiers who found themselves charged at twice or three times the level of their rates, there was rioting on the streets, it cost the Prime Minister her job, and it was replaced by Michael Heseltine after three years with the council tax, which was a return to a form of property tax, although one that was banded and included discounts and exemptions based on the size and composition of the household. Well, next, the Child Support Agency. This was initiated by Mrs Thatcher and set up under John Major in 1993. And it was meant to address the rapidly growing problem of single mothers whose former partners were paying no child maintenance and who therefore had to rely on income support and other benefits. So-called feckless fathers had twigged that they could have children, abandon the mother and leave it to the state to pick up the tab. And the tab was growing rapidly throughout the 1980s. At that time, child maintenance issues were handled by the courts, but in most people's view, they were cumbersome, slow, arbitrarily inconsistent, and ineffective. So the government established the Child Support Agency to assess, collect, and distribute all maintenance payments. And at the time, almost everybody thought it a good idea in principle, from moral authoritarians and fiscal conservatives on the right to welfare champions and campaigning feminists on the left. Ministers promoted the Child Support Agency at the second reading of the Act as a means of lifting millions of children out of poverty, saving the taxpayer money, and forcing young fathers to meet their responsibilities, all at the same time. Well, it turned out to be a disaster. It cost far more to run than it ever collected in payments. It left hundreds of thousands of single mothers and their children worse off than before. Single mothers en masse refused to identify the fathers. Very few supposedly feckless fathers paid up for the simple reason that being feckless, they just didn't have the money. The IT system set up to manage the processes soon choked to death, as did its very costly replacement, producing administrative chaos. The CSA came to be called the Complete Shambles Agency. There were countless instances running into hundreds of thousands of miscalculated charges, of payments going into the wrong accounts, and of payments being charged to the wrong fathers. And you may imagine the breakfast scene when the wife sees a letter to a blameless father demanding maintenance payment for the child he never told her about because he never fathered it, or the frustration of childless gay men being Relentlessly pursued by the CSA. <laughs> Eventually, 15 years, four governments, and five chief executives later, the idea of a government agency superintending child maintenance arrangements was abandoned. And then, thirdly, Metronet. The blunder of Metronet exceeded the scale of the poll tax in its waste of public money, although not in human distress, and it was barely noticed in the media. In the 1990s, the London Underground was in poor shape, with a huge backlog of maintenance and and desperately in need uh, uh, of upgrading. The Government recognised the need for a major long-term upgrade. The traditional forms of procurement for an infrastructure project of such magnitude Uh, is either a contract issued by a central public commissioning authority, such as Transport for London or the Department of Transport, or a bond issue underwritten by the central government or the Greater London Authority. Instead, and against advice from all with expertise and experience in the matter, the Treasury insisted on a public-private partnership, The idea of a PPP is to transfer risk to the private sector and to take the costs off the government's public accounts. Metronet was the larger of two consortia of major private companies, companies in the construction and engineering sectors, established to undertake the modernisation program. The multi-layered management structure of the setup, which involves the Treasury, the London Underground, Transport for London, the Metronet Consortium, and its constituent companies, all of whom were very large companies, was of hideous and baffling complexity. The detailed, convoluted contracts, drawn up to manage the risk of every element (coughs) in the programme, ran to 28,000 pages and 2 million words, and cost over half a billion pounds in consultants' and lawyers' fees. In 2007, Metronet went bust, with very little maintenance or upgrading having been undertaken. To keep the show on the road up to the point of bankruptcy, the Treasury had agreed in a side comfort letter to underwrite 95% of Metronet's liabilities. In other words, the risk had not been transferred to the private companies but was shouldered by the taxpayer. Estimates of the overall cost to the taxpayer vary from 2.5 million to as much as a uh, billion, sorry, to as much as 20 billion. And as one of the officials we interviewed for the book said, you couldn't make it up. You simply couldn't make it up. Okay. Well, that gives you a flavor of the kind of uh, uh, case studies that we examine. Why do blunders happen? We offer no general theory of blunders, no single capstone explanation, and indeed each of our case studies was to some degree sui generis. But it is helpful, I think, to distinguish between structural and behavioural causes. Structural causes are rooted in poorly designed policy making and delivery structures which are liable to produce or allow mistakes irrespective of the quality and behaviour of the individuals and groups. Involved. Individual politicians or officials possessing the greatest skills and abilities would have made the same mistakes given the decision making structure, procedures, and culture in which they operate. Uh, And just to give you uh, a different example, the Ministry of Defence has blundered repeatedly in procuring defence equipment, and numerous government agencies have similarly blundered in the commissioning and implementation of IT systems, but it does seem highly improbable that these blunders can all be attributed to the failings of particular individuals and groups. They would appear to be institutional, systemic and cultural in character. Structural malfunctioning points to the need for the reform of policy-making institutions. Behavioural causes refer to the inadequate skills or delinquent behaviour of ministers and officials operating in a sound system of policy-making. The culprits are one or more of ignorant, prejudiced, overconfident, careless, stubborn, lacking in judgement or whatever. And the remedies here include better training, more appropriate experience, increased self and group awareness... Uh, and, perhaps most important of all, more compelling rewards and sanctions for performance. There's no hard and fast distinction between institutional and behavioural causes. They, They are interconnected and they overlap, and in particular, institutions shape the incentives and opportunities for politicians and officials to act in ways that make blunders more likely or less likely to happen. Well let me begin with structural causes and highlight two features of the institutional landscape, which we call a deficit of deliberation and a deficit of accountability. The the characteristic of the British political system that was envied 50 years ago and is still praised elsewhere is its strength and decisiveness. Uh, We don't have to endure in this country the paralysis that so often afflicts the governments of other countries and thinks at the moment of the United States. If if a British government wants to act, it does so and can do so. It is unconstrained by veto players. That is to say, individuals and institutions whose backing is needed for any major initiative and who are therefore able to block any initiative that they find objectionable or that threatens their interests. It's not beholden to minority parties in Parliament because it can almost always count on the support of a majority in the House of Commons. Nor is it beholden to the House of Lords, which lacks the power or legitimacy of, for example, the United States Senate. Nor is it beholden to the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom, which lacks the authority of, for example, Germany's Constitutional Court or the US Supreme Court. Nor is it beholden to powerful city and regional governments that constitute independent centres of power in federal systems, such as those of Australia or Germany or the United States. The British system is very efficient at converting a minister's whim, picked up at a Notting Hill or Islington dinner party, or a panic-stricken reaction to tabloid headlines, into a bill, albeit a hastily and badly drafted one. The whips will drive it through the Commons and the Parliamentary Committees. Number 10 in the Treasury will lean on Ministers. Ministers will instruct civil servants to deliver. Whitehall will issue guidelines to town halls or national health trusts or whoever is responsible for applying the policy on the ground. The trouble with a system designed to make decisions unconstrained is that it is every bit as easy to take the wrong decision as it is to take the right decision. Good decisions are facilitated, but so are bad ones. Ministers would hate it, but perhaps the policy-making process would be improved if it, was a com- com- if it accommodated more veto players rather than fewer. And our study of blunders certainly points in that direction. All the governments that committed the blunders that we investigated were strong and decisive, but their very strength and decisiveness made possible, indeed positively encouraged, their blundering. The British system is designed for decisiveness, but it's not designed, and certainly does nothing to encourage, deliberation. And to explain what I mean, imagine that you, personally, have to make a big decision. And one that, if you got it wrong, could be very costly to you, financially or emotionally. For example, you have to decide which university to go to, or what career to enter, or what house to buy. What would you do? Well, you would deliberate, by which I mean three things. You would carefully weigh the pros and cons. You wouldn't plump for the first university or house that you came across. You would gather as much information as you could. You would think about it. You would take your time. You wouldn't decide immediately, because you'd need time to gather information and ask around. And you would take advice from those with more experience and knowledge, but whom you could trust to give you honest and disinterested counsel. And if you were very sensible, you would listen dispassionately, even to those whom you knew to be sceptical about the decision that you were minded to take. Well, the common feature of our set of blunders is that the government did none of these things. Almost all of the blunders were just stated very much in-house, within the executive branch. The government didn't deliberate with the people most directly affected, or with those whose job it was to apply a policy, or with independent experts, or with those who were opposed from the very start. Either the mechanisms for deliberation didn't exist, or where they did, the outcomes were ignored. (coughs) So, in the case of the poll tax, a small group of seriously bright officials and junior ministers were asked to propose an alternative to the rates. It was a complex and major project. They were closeted together and worked long hours together in the classic British country house. They drank together. They even played bridge together. They talked incessantly (coughs) to each other. But they didn't talk to the people who mattered. They deliberately excluded local government treasurers, the real experts on local tax collection, whose day-to-day activities would be adversely affected if they failed to collect tax, on the grounds that local government treasurers had preordained views that they had an agenda. And they didn't investigate the probable reaction of local taxpayers because they assumed that they knew it. In the case of the Child Support Act, the government ignored the doubts expressed by the child poverty lobby and failed to consult officials who had direct experience of collecting payments and information from the poor the managers and staff of social security officers. And in the case of the London Underground uh, PPP, Metronet, its begetter, the Treasury, led by Gordon Brown, supported by a small group of city advisers, ignored Transport for London, who managed the London Underground, as being irredeemably tainted by mishaps in the building of the Jubilee Line, And they went to great lengths to exclude the soon-to-be-created Greater London Assembly and the soon-to-be-elected London Mayor, (coughs) Ken Livingstone. Nothing in the British system, or indeed in the British political culture, required the government to reach out beyond its own confines. The institutional locus of national deliberation should, of course, be Parliament, one of whose roles is to scrutinise the details of legislation. Parliament turns out to be a black hole at the centre of our governmental system it was an irrelevant spectator of the 12 policy blunders that we examined. Most of these uh, blunders involved new primary legislation, but on all essential points, the members of the governing party and the Commons did little more than support their ministers' legislative proposals. The House of Lords merely did as it was told. In neither House were there pre-legislative hearings, the public bill committees, where legislation is meant to be examined clause by clause, Uh, are systematically whipped, and the select committees, including the Public Accounts Committee, look at policy after the event and not before. The bills in most cases were rushed through, sometimes rushed through at quite astonishing speed, with little time allowed either for substantive debate or for detailed scrutiny of individual clauses and the few voices that were raised in opposition were largely ignored. Indeed, a notable feature of the whole list of blunders was the inevitability with which the opposition parties would object to the policies on grounds of principle, but the rarity with which they argued that, in fact, the policies would also fail in their objectives. The only exception that we could find being the mis of pensions where the opposition got it right. The official opposition parties played no effective part, and scarcely any ineffective part, in any of the proceedings. And when we conducted our interviews with former ministers and senior officials, what struck us was that almost none of them mentioned Parliament, even in passing, until we brought it up ourselves, at which point they usually dismissed it as irrelevant. (coughs) Now at this point, you might ask, Don't ministers want to avoid blunders? And if so, why don't they understand the advantages of careful deliberation? After all, they are formally accountable to Parliament for the performance of their department, uh, and they run the risk of media exposure when things go badly wrong. But in reality, ministers are not accountable for the outcomes of their policy initiatives. We drew up a list of all the ministers and senior officials associated with our 12 horror stories. This amounted to about 80 people altogether. And we traced how many had resigned or suffered demotion or sanctions. And if we exclude the chief executives of the delivery agencies, the answer is one, only one. Can you guess who it is? Or who it was? It was Margaret Thatcher. So in the British system, blunderers go unpunished. And for that matter, achievers go unnoticed and unrewarded. And the main reason is that ministers and senior officials typically stay in post for a couple of years. In our 30-year period, there were 13 Home Secretaries, 14 Pensions Ministers, 13 Education Ministers. So the average tenure was a little bit over two years. (coughs) By the time a blunder becomes apparent, by the time a policy idea has been turned into an implementation mess, They have moved on or out. They do not even appear before the PAC or select committee. It is left to their hapless successors to do do the explaining and apologising. Well, a general election is held and ministers are appointed. Put yourself in the shoes of the minister. They usually have little knowledge of, or indeed personal engagement with, their department's policy area prior to arriving at the department. But they know three things. They know that they've only got a year or two to make a mark, or to grab the attention of the media or of Number 10, or of their party. They know that a new policy, backed by Number 10 and the Treasury, will reach the statute book unblocked by any veto player. And thirdly, they know that by the time the consequences of their policy initiatives become apparent, they won't be associated with the cock-up or the triumph. So they are attracted to short-term achievements and to designing and pushing through policy initiatives as fast as they can. They demand that their officials come to them with solutions, not problems. They have little incentive to get weighed down by time-consuming deliberation or to involve themselves in the messy and frustrating details of implementation. And they certainly have no incentive to manage policy initiatives which take five or more years to come to fruition. Well, these structural features of the policy-making system shape the behaviour of ministers and officials irrespective of their individual capacities. I've already touched on the incentives to drive through hastily considered short-term initiatives with little thought given to practicalities of implementation. But they've also created what might be described as a culture of ministerial hyper-activism. In public life, as in private, Ambition and drive are important ingredients for success, but absence of individual accountability and of countervailing checks and balances generates excessive optimism and misplaced confidence that can easily lead to blunders. Yes, we can works better as a rhetorical call to arms than as a guide to action. In the case of both the Child Support Agency and Metronet, but most of the others too, The ministers responsible were confident that the policy could be made to work if only the officials got on with the job of delivering it. They also believe that all problems, however complex, have a solution, that it can be a comprehensive and lasting solution, and that it is the responsibility of government to find and implement it. It is the gung-ho confidence that if a minister wants something enough to happen, and says so often enough, it can be made to happen. It is the assumption that officials who point out snags and obstacles are being obstructive and should be replaced, that professionals who are sceptical are self-interested and should be ignored. One of the former ministers whom we interviewed, Peter Lilly, reflected on the something-must-be-done mentality of the civil service when he was there. And he recalled his first position as a parliamentary private secretary. (coughs) said that he was unusually allowed to attend ministerial discussions and in advance of these meetings would receive papers containing half a dozen options. And it struck him as strange that none of them offered the option of doing nothing. And at his request, eventually this was done. It became known within his department as the Lily option. But he was the exception. He would not have been thirty years ago. Benign neglect is now alien to the culture of Whitehall. Well, let me turn finally to the skills and experience of the political class that have presided over the cases that we studied and highlight just two of the behavioural causes of blunders. And the first is one that we call cultural disconnect. Individuals in government and governments collectively may blunder because they suffer from a huge cultural gap between their lives and those for whom they are making policy. They devise policies in the belief that those affected by them will respond in a particular way only to be surprised to discover that they respond very differently or not at all. And they fail to recognise that the people whose behaviour they are trying to influence live lives that are very different from their own. They project onto others their own mindsets, values, habits and assumptions which tend to be unrepresentative of the people most affected by a policy. So they fly into potentially violent storms without radar but without realising that that is what they are doing. And let me give you some examples. Well in the case of the poll tax uh, those who devised it took it absolutely for granted that everybody complied with the law. Because they complied with the law and they come from a class that complies with the law. Very early on in their deliberations, an official, a Department of Environment official, who wasn't kept on within the group, said to them of the poll tax, try collecting it from Brixton. This was before Brixton became the hit place, which is now. Um, It did not occur uh, to those who devised the poll tax that large numbers of people who felt that they couldn't pay it or shouldn't pay it would find all kinds of ways of avoiding payment. In the case of the child support agency, uh, those who uh, devised uh, the policy uh, and who were responsible for the spec for the computer software that was meant to manage the uh, collection and transfer of payments Uh, assumed that if a mother and father split up uh, the uh, father leaves and might set up uh, a new household and the mother in turn might well find a new partner and set up a new household but they didn't think that Um, anything more than that was likely to happen they were unaware that mothers might have four children by four different fathers who have each impregnated four different mothers or that mothers might quite genuinely not know who the father is or who the father could possibly be and one of the officials whom we interviewed said I didn't realise that people led such complicated lives (laughs) Um, and the the, the, the computer programme broke down in the, case of, in the case of the individual learning accounts, which I, which I didn't describe to you in any uh, detail, uh, the individual learning accounts, I should explain, were, was a, a, a program like uh, so many of these policy initiatives, uh, in principle, um, highly commendable, which was intended to encourage uh, individuals who were seeking... Uh, uh, qualifications, particularly qualifications that would upgrade their skills and uh, uh, and uh, improve their position in the labour market, is that encodes them to undertake uh, training. And uh, uh, if, if uh, an individual put £25 into an account then it would be topped up by as much as £150 <coughs> by, uh, uh, by the government. The government decided that uh, it would open the market to trainers, skills uh, trainers. It did not want to restrict skills trainers to the traditional providers, namely uh, further education colleges and uh, some established companies. Uh, This would be too bureaucratic, far better to leave it to the market to uh, supply uh, skills trainers. So it decided that there was no need to undertake any quality control or need even to establish a register of uh, 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 skills uh, uh, providers. Uh, it also um uh, did not attend to the security of the, the computer security of the accounts that it set up. So it was taken very much by surprise at the entrepreneurial spirit of the criminal classes of, of Britain who <laughs> realised that they could pretend to be uh, uh, skills uh, uh, trainers and who found ways of uh, registering um, uh, uh, individuals with these accounts Um, as students, unbeknownst to the individuals themselves, and swiping £150 from each of their um, accounts. Uh, And when we asked um, again previous officials why it hadn't occurred to them that, that the scheme that they had set up would be open to that degree of fraud and embezzlement, it was clear that they just didn't have any experience of or knowledge of the cowboy end of the small business world. Now, this, the second uh, behavioural cause of blunders is something we call operational disconnect. Uh, and um, it's, it, describes, um, those who do, it describes the gulf between those who design the policy and those whose job it is to implement it. Sometimes the planners sit in one set of offices while the executants sit in another, without the planners realising that they should be in close communication with each other. The rapid rotation of ministers and officials exacerbate the problem. The policy makers operated effectively in an implementation vacuum. They didn't regard issues of implementation as their problem because they didn't imagine it could ever threaten the viability of the policy. And I've already mentioned some examples of this, such as the uh, failure of the Whitehall poll tax group to consult local government finance officers and so on. Why didn't the policy designers and policy planners communicate with and consult the implementers? One might think it was blindingly obvious that a policy design is only as good as its practical application. Well, not if you have had no or very little experience in your life of running an organisation or delivering services or satisfying clients or customers. In other words, of managing and delivering change. And most ministers and indeed senior officials do not. Our political leaders are increasingly professional politicians who've spent their entire career, almost all of it, in politics itself. As student politicians, many of them doing PPE, political researchers and speech writers and young MPs. Cameron, Clegg and Miliband; Osborne, Gove, Lansley and Haig have spent almost their entire adult lives in politics. They are experienced parliamentarians, campaigners, lobbyists, researchers, communicators, speech writers. They know how Westminster and perhaps bits of Whitehall work. But until they assumed office, they hadn't run anything. So perhaps it's not surprising that they miscalculate the impact of policies and indeed take little interest in the practical implementation as distinct from its principles of design. Not all ministers are without outside experience, but even those who enter Parliament later in life from a different career have typically had jobs that don't involve taking responsibility for the achievement of collective objectives in an uncertain world. They are preponderantly lawyers, fund managers, consultants, teachers, journalists. Fifty years ago, a larger proportion had run businesses, or trade unions, or large charities, or estates, or troops in the armed forces, or were leaders of their local authority. The only members of the current cabinet who qualify, even marginally, um, uh, 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 for having experience of that kind are Vince Cable, Eric Pickles, and Ian Duncan Smith. Well, one uh, final wider thought... Uh, In recent years, all of our political leaders have promised to engage in reforms that enhance the quality of our democracy. Gordon Brown launched an initiative, although it petered out. Nick Clegg tried to change the electoral system and to democratise the House of Lords. David Cameron has publicly committed himself to shifting the balance of power from central government to local institutions. We have directly elected police commissioners now. But in all these cases the emphasis is on the quality of democracy in the UK rather than the quality of UK governments, of their decision-making systems and how they are applied, of their people and how they think and operate. Almost certainly the popular legitimacy of our democratic institutions owes more to the standard of government affecting everyday lives than does the quality of governments owe to democratic design. Blundering governments are not governments that command respect. Perhaps the principal cause of our discontent is poor quality governing rather than democratic deficit, and this is what needs to be addressed. So maybe the poet Alexander Pope caught the public mood in his essay on man. For forms of government let fools contest, for air is best administered is best.